Hey everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we share Black feminist perspectives and close read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey y'all, I'm Alyssa, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Happy New Year. It's 2023. Big things are gone. Big things are coming. Big things are gone. (laughs) (laughs) So today, we are answering listener questions. You all wrote us from IG and beyond, and we're here to share whatever advice or wisdom we got. I mean, we're doing the best we can with what we yeah. got, and we'll s- in the words of Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. What I've gleaned from my almost in a month, uh, 34 years of life. <laughs> and we also have some announcements for this semester. Brandon, you, know. you want to tell them? <laughs> Yes, I I guess I will say what needs to be said. So as you all know, we started Zora's Daughters in 2020 because we were really tired of white people's shit. Like, well, let me extend that. Non-black people's shit. Um, <laughs> and we really wanted to have an unapologetically black feminist space to talk about issues that matter to us. And so as black women anthropologists, right, we don't encounter many spaces where we get to just be and talk theory and talk about the world. And we really, truly cherish the space that the podcast has created for us and for our community, for y'all, for our listeners. Like this is it's been an amazing experience so far. Um, All of that being said, uh, this will be the last semester that we do regular bi-weekly episodes. Both Alyssa and I want to be able to focus on the next steps of our work, of our life. We were just talking about, before we turn on the mics, how we have lives outside of academia um, that a lot of academics can't can't empathize with that feeling <laughs> or statement um <laughs> you know we and no tino shade i just want to say that given just how twitter has been lately we have our nonprofit, which is she is the world incorporated that we're really working on developing programming for i'm trying to graduate this year Alyssa has started writing her dissertation she's planning a wedding We're both going to be on the job market. Uh, So we decided that the best decision would be to end our regularly scheduled programming after this semester. Okay, when you actually said it, I mean, we've been talking about this for a while, but when you actually said it, it was like my heart clenched. I was like, I I couldn't believe it. Like there's a little baby ass tear right here (laughs) hanging out in the corner of my eye. Um, But we don't want you all to feel like we we took this lightly. We really went around and around on this decision. We're like, yes. And we're like, we're going to continue. And then it was, oh no, I'm not sure. You know, maybe we need to do something else. And, but then, you know, we met all of these listeners and, we, we were just so inspired and we wanted to continue. Um, mm-hmm. But just know that this podcast and all of you have been such a blessing these past two and a half years. And we did not want to let you down, but we want to focus on building She is the World because we want to grow our impact and also create space for other blessings to come into our life, right? So it's not goodbye. It's see you elsewhere. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I was actually listening to It's Hard to Say Goodbye from Dreamgirls, as you 
as folks may or may not know, I really love musicals and Dreamgirls is in my top three. <laughs> that was an amazing musical. What? What? I love Dreamgirls too. Mm-hmm. Now, don't think we're just going to disappear. We still have some panels and talks planned and we'll have some pop-up episodes every once and again. So don't unsubscribe. In fact, you should subscribe with notifications on every single platform so you don't miss those specials, right? Because if we're going to do an episode and it's a pop-up episode, you know we're doing something that's going to be big. Big and bad. Big and bad. (laughs) So this semester, we have some very special guests. For Black History Month, we're doing a series with iconic Black feminist anthropologists. And I hope... We both hope that you are ready to hear some insights from Dr. Irma McLaurin, Dr. Janetta B. Cole, and other OGs, all right? Mm-hmm. We will also be interviewing Tracy Heather Strain, the director of the PBS American Experience film Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space, that debuted yesterday, January 17th. But I think that's enough tea. Don't want to give everything away. You know, got to keep a little mystery. Got to keep a little mystery. A little, little mystery. You know? Something. Just a little something. <laughs> uh, we, as always, want to say thank you to all of our listeners, whether you tuned in from Finland or New Zealand, China, or the last state in the U.S., Florida. Um, we Caribbean, appreciate Africa, you. Like, all y'all. Uh, all y'all. <laughs> South, the South America. All <laughs> thank you. Um, and so if you would like us to do a workshop for Juneteenth or really just any day uh, because it's Black Feminist 365 over here. That's what we say all the time. Like, feel free to get in touch. We're still open to talking to classes and spending time with you all. It's just going to look different uh, moving forward. And so we've done workshops in the past on supporting Black women in the workplace reclaiming your radiance and finding joy and community for international companies, for universities and local organizations. And what's different about us versus some other people you might hire is that all our shit is custom, right? It's interactive. The talks that we have address the needs of your group and people truly enjoy them. Uh, so head over to zorasdaughters.com to email us for more details. Yes. I mean, I just want to say for some of our events, we have met with your DEI committees and been like, and spoken mm-hmm. to them, asked them what they wanted us to talk about, what were some of the things that they wanted said that they couldn't say because it was their place of work. And, and we have done that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we would be thrilled to do that for other other places of, of employment, other places of business. And of course, creating these episodes would not be possible without you. The best way to support us is by becoming a patron, where you can access the ZD community, speak to us personally, and see exclusive videos and audio from our episodes. This semester, we'll have some exclusive content from our interviews. Head to patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters to learn more. With the holidays having just passed, because I know, I know what my credit card bill's looking like. Whew. And I know my stipend check hasn't come in yet. Whew. (laughs) (laughs) Yo. (laughs) Other ways to support us include leaving a rating and a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, 
following us on social media, and sharing our episodes with your friends, family, students, neighbors, side pieces, that supervisor that made being an ally to Black people their goal for 2023. Give them Mm -hmm. the gift of ZD. (laughs) All right, without further ado, let's get into these questions. Yes, so we asked y'all to ask us anything, and I will say y'all delivered. Um, We have some life questions. We have some academic questions. We have some musings, some philosophical questions, existential questions, and just some other shit to answer. Um, So I'm excited about this. Yeah. (laughs) It's not our usual (laughs) Q&A. No. gonna be good and you know as an Aquarius I love some existential existential questions Mm -hmm. um so yes we may not get to all of them today but we also have discussion sections as spaces for y'all to hang out with us and get your questions answered and of course if we do this again we're gonna need more context y'all like we said we wanted the tea we need the tea okay can't just ask us one one can't just give us the questions straight like that. We need to know the context of what's going on. For real. What's going on it in your really life? Matters. Like, you know, we can't just, we don't want to give you just vague answers. We want to know what's going on, what has led you to ask this question. It's good practice for writing research papers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, should we start with question number one that we have? Yeah. So, we organ are, um, not we, I'm saying we, but. Our social media assistant, Mia, organized these questions by theme. And so the first theme that we have is academic. And our first question is, what made you decide to pursue your PhD? Do you think it is a requirement for advancement? My answer is delayed adulthood. (laughs) (laughs) I think most people enter PhD programs for that reason, Um, maybe if they don't consciously no subconsciously Mm -hmm. I would say um (laughs) what made me decide to pursue I was a high school science teacher I thought that I was going to teach high school students forever I thought that was going to be my career I joined a national program that quote-unquote trains teachers it's horrible I wouldn't advise for anyone to do it Um, But they sold me a lie that I was going to be doing social justice work as a teacher. And so I started in the end of August. And by the first week of October, I was like, absolutely the fuck not. I need to find something else to do. (laughs) And I remembered how much I enjoyed doing my honors thesis project, how much I enjoyed reading and writing about black women and their, you know, and issues with sexual violence and trauma and all of these things shit that people most people are like "Ooh, you like reading about that I'm like yes (laughs) did you know that x y and z and you know um and I was like well how can I continue to do this and also stop being a teacher and that is when I started learning about what it means to be a PhD and as a first generation student Uh, First person in my family to graduate from college. I had no clue that you, like, I didn't know what it took to become a professor or really do anything. So um, I had to learn how to do that and learn the, like, 
it's like a whole learning system to even get into a, a PhD mm-hmm. program. Like there's a whole language and um, work ethic that you have to develop. And then once you get to your PhD program, there's a whole nother, um, what do they call it? Hidden curriculum, Hidden curriculum that you have to learn as mm-hmm. well. I would say though, um, that if I could go back and change my mind, I probably would because it's actually not a requirement to advance, but it, that depends on the kind of job that you want to have. Um, if you want to be like a scientist, I know most scientists that's required to have a PhD, but if you're doing work in communities, most of the time you don't need an advanced degree to do that. You just need to have the experience. Um, and that is something that I wish I would have known before I started my program. What about you? So for me, I, I mean, the, the delayed, de- delaying adulthood wasn't a, wasn't a complete lie. We were just talking about how I don't mind being, <laughs> being an institution, you know, institutionalized is what I say is that a lot of academics are deeply institutionalized because, you know, they went from elementary to high school to college and straight into the PhD and now they work at a university. Mm-hmm. So um, they're just, they've been within that system and have never been outside of it, which is why I think that Sayers Law is such a thing because it really is the the be all end all of a lot of people's lives, even anthropologists um, who work on quote unquote the real world. Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> so I wasn't entirely joking. Um, having spent a few years out there, and I was like, wow, I'm I'm tired of this. But I was working I guess you could say I was freelancing and I was doing travel writing and content marketing and there was at the time this movement towards slow travel and ethical travel and people trying to write more culturally culturally respectful kinds of travel writing and I would still read those and feel like they were pretty shallow uh, mm-hmm. at best and harmful in many cases. So I was just kind of tired of the I was tired of tired of the lack of depth that you found in travel writing, but I wanted to continue um, having that experience of of being able to. I don't know, be able to ask questions about people's cultures and understand culture and write about them, but in ways where people were actually learning things and not just being entertained. And mm. so that's kind of, I was debating between sociology and, and anthropology because I had taken more courses in, in sociology in undergrad and I had done a lot of those courses in, in sexuality, women and gender studies. Um, but in the end, I decided to go with anthropology because, as I've mentioned a few times on this podcast, one of the most impactful texts that I had read um, that I found to be very insightful based on the experiences that I had had during my travels was, uh, was an ethnography. And so that was why mm-hmm. I decided to go with anthropology. Do I think it is a requirement for advancement? So this is this is that's the kind of question where context would have been great. Advancement in what field, as Brendan said. So, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to do you want to be? Are you in chemistry? 
if so, maybe not. I know people who have a Bachelor of Science and they work for Fenty, like creating makeup. And if I had known that you could do that with a chemistry degree, I probably would have studied chemistry. Like, oh. I probably, I said that, like, if um, I could do my life over again, I think I would study chemistry because I loved, I loved, I loved, I loved um, organic chem. I was terrible at the, like, physical chemistry. Mm -mm. But equations and all that stuff, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't get me talking about sigma bonds and all that stuff. Look, look, that's a part of a past life for me, okay? (laughs) Pre-med, that was before I knew myself so that is mm-mm, that said it does mm-mm. so there's there's actually been research on this in some cases a phd can hold you back because mm-hmm. people will see you as overqualified or they won't believe that they have the budget to pay you enough based on your degree so they'll assume that you expect a higher salary that isn't in the budget for that role so in some cases, it, it can actually hold you back. Of course, if you're going, if you want to work for the government, if you want to work as you know, as a statistician, or um, if you want to work in those kinds of like civil servant roles, I think that it's a good thing. It'll help you get up there in those pay scales. Same with, I'm not sure how it works in the states, but at least in Canada, um, if you're a teacher, then having a PhD will definitely bump you up in terms of pay scale depends on the state some states don't uh, compensate for additional education like North Carolina um, when I left teaching got rid of the pay bump for people who got masters or PhDs wow I mean and when I was in high school I had a biology teacher who was a who had a PhD and she was one of the best biology teachers I ever had so you know don't feel like because you have a PhD, you have to work at a university, you know, you can have and do a lot of impactful work. I think a lot of PhDs also work in, um, in private schools, which is like, you get mm-hmm. that, you get that high school, private school life where you have your summers off and a lot of people, they still, they still do part-time research because they have the, they have that capacity and they get paid really well, especially in places like New York. So <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not closing mm-hmm. the door to that one. Um, although anthropology, they're like. Mm. I went to a recruiting event once, and they were like, "Don't know, don't know." Uh, they were like, "Yeah, private schools have a little bit more latitude with their electives, but anthropology, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know anyone who's doing that." Okay, so. y'all stop pretending like you wouldn't have me teaching social. Exactly. Studies, like, please. isn't there? A, isn't stop there um, an SAT? what are they called because we don't have to we didn't have to do sat so i don't know what they're called they have subject exams right i'm pretty sure there's an sat Mm -hmm. anthropology subject exam so i feel like if that Um, exists uh. then they should be hiring anthropology phds (laughs) as teachers anyways (laughs) next question how do you not get dissuaded (laughs) about the contributions you may or may not make to your field of study I guess get dissuaded, I'm going to assume that this is more about imposter syndrome uh, than anything else. Um, And honestly, imposter syndrome is something that I battle with and something that I'm like actively like, how do I get this shit out of my thinking? Um, And what really helps me 
is to think about the work that I have done already and think about the fact that like whether or not I'm recognized as a scholar that does X, Y, and Z, um, the work that I've done has impact on the communities that it matters to, right? So it allows me to shift from this frame of like seeing myself as someone who deserves praise from everybody all around, right? Which may or may not be genuine, which may or may not be rooted in the same values that I hold and think about like, is the work that I'm doing actually doing something for black women, black trans and non-trans women, right? Am I impacting black girls, black non-binary people? And, And so even if the academy doesn't hand me an award or hand me a grant or hand me a fellowship for something, that doesn't mean that the value of my work is any less. Um, so that's part of it, a partial answer to your question. Yeah. So for you, it's less about the contribution to the field of study, but really the, the contribution to the communities that you're accountable to. Yeah, because like who you, like we all know that grants and fellowships and all these programs have these white supremacist standards for how they evaluate these things right so why would i as a black person that would that's literally self-hate to be like oh let me look at these <laughs> these anti-black things and hold myself to that that means i don't love myself mm. oh no Mm-mm. wow that's deep you just you just cut a few people open with that one. <laughs> oh, my bad my bad <laughs> yeah for me um I recently I recently listened to Michelle Obama's book, The Light We Carry. Y'all, I'm so I'm really corny. But anyways, she <laughs> reminded me of this of this, you know, saying that people have, which is don't let great get in the way of good. And mm-hmm. I hold myself to the standard where I expect myself to do great things. And when I don't feel like I will be able to, I'm not able to, I'm not willing to settle for good enough. And I think that that's the goal that I have for myself this year is to be happy with good and take, and take those small steps to, you know, towards the great. But if I don't achieve Mm -hmm. it, then, you know, I, I will be comfortable with that because I'm still, I'm still taking those taking those small steps and making small achievements. Um, and so I guess that my advice would be, you know, don't don't necessarily think about the contribution, like your your overall contribution. Think think about the the small goals that you have or think about the goals that you have for yourself and the small steps you can take to achieve them. And I think it builds confidence when you break down your goals into small parts. And you can achieve each of those small parts. I think that helps build your confidence. Right. So at the end of the day, um, academic celebrity is... Okay, let me back up. Right? Like I, I'm, again, not sure how you measure contributions to your field of study. But if it's um, through visibility of scholars, right, via social media or, you know, conferences and things like that, Right. It's it just truly depends on like where your values lie and like what kind of country like are you trying to change the field of anthropology? For me, 
it's not in my values to make anthropology a better field. I think me just being in anthropology makes it better, but I'm not actively out here like I need to change this discipline. Um, and so if if you're you know a philosopher or lit, do literature studies or what what have you, right? Is your are your goals and your values in trying to change the field of study or can, or further that field of study or is it towards a community, towards yourself. Um, and then if it's about you, or if it's about you, then you set what makes a contribution valuable or not, right? So, um, yeah, I just, I had to learn real early not to let these people know your standards can't be my standards. Mm-mm. Uh, let's see, the in my program, to study and to focus, my white peers often use Adderall or similar stimulant medications to work well. I've never tried them and question whether stimulants will help me. I personally have not been diagnosed, but I do question my ability to work at a disadvantage for my peers. We don't know the long-term effects either. Have you all considered taking similar medications and have you been in proximity to it? Yes to both questions. I've considered taking similar medications. Have I been in proximity to it? Yes, of course. I went to a very competitive undergraduate program um, or university in general. And where I did my master's, I mean, that's when it was really picking up, but it was more so among the undergrads. And I'm about to expose myself, but my brother... (laughs) I'm also going to expose my brother. My brother was on Vyvanse and I took one, but just to see what it was like, because I'm an anthropologist, y'all. I need to have experiences, okay? I like to try things. So I tried it. I didn't notice any difference, but I think with I think with Vyvanse, you have to take it over an extended period. It has to build up in your system before you start actually mm. feeling the effects Um So that's just to tell you, I was curious just to see, but because it didn't really have any effect for me, my brother was like, yeah, because you don't have ADHD. (laughs) So I didn't find it to be something that that was um, worth it for me. That said, of course, you know, I've I felt the pressure to to use, I guess we can call them performance enhancing drugs. but for me, I'm just, I don't know. I don't know why I've, I didn't really, I'll have to think, I'll think about it. Brendan, you can, you can answer and I'll think about why yeah, I never I really s- like went for it. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll say I, I mean, I grew up in, in the South, um, in South Carolina in like a very kind of Christian household where medications that weren't directly like like diabetes, like diabetes medications or other kind of like physical ailments. Um, that's something that people really discouraged. So even using things like pain medication, right, was something that I, um, growing up, was not really um, encouraged. The encouragement was to, to pray to God to take it away from you. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so yeah, I guess I, as an adult now, I don't really have the desire to take these kind of medications that for some people, right, they use 
they use to enhance performance, but for others actually really helps their brain operate in a way that aligns with like what capitalism demands of us, right? So for some folks who are like, who are disabled, right? Um, Adderall helps them be able to function in work environments and other kinds of environments. I have been around people who've used it in this way to kind of, you know, help them do assignments and uh, focus on things. And I know folks who are on ADD and ADHD medication because that literally helps them be able to get up and wash their dishes and wash themselves. So um, if you feel like you need medication to live your life in whatever way, then you know, by all means, do what you need to do. But it's, I don't know, I I feel strange being like, that's a bad thing. People shouldn't use Adderall to do do work. Like, you know, that's on them. You know, that's like, that's Mm -hmm. a personal choice, right? Um, And I will say though, that if if you are, one reason that has discouraged me too, as an adult from um, using, these medications without a prescription is that I have some anxiety. And so I have a feeling that any kind of stimulant would make that worse. And I'm not a medical professional, so I I have no real clue, but that's just kind of like what I know from my experience with, um, I'm like, ooh, do I expose myself? From other drugs (laughs) that, uh, not, uh, I have not done, um, Anything that's illegal in all of the states, I'll say that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> my my grandmother listens to this now, so I'm like, uh, so from other drugs, the where there was like a stimulant um, aspect of it, like you know, a certain strain that stimulates your brain, um, that's caused me to be very anxious. I I can't even drink caffeine, um, so. I stay away from stimulants just because it doesn't work for my body. But I do not pass judgment on people, no matter whether they're white or not, if if they choose to. Because you got to do what you got to do, mm-hmm. right? So, Yeah, for me, uh, edibles in Canada are legal. Marijuana is legal in Canada. So um, I will just say that edibles and other marijuana <laughs> products... <laughs> make me so calm because I also have a lot of anxiety and they just make me so calm that I think my breathing is going to slow down and I'm going to die <laughs> so I'm not really I'm not have, a drug it has, you know, in oh my gosh I had red I had a red bull one time red bull and tequila because that was the only thing that was left at this party and I literally thought I was going to have a heart attack and die so I just oh Lord. yeah I just think that my breathing and my heart my is going to slow down to stimulants. a stop so I freak out um <laughs> so we've just told you so much about ourselves so while I while I was listening to Brendan and also reflecting on my myself I realized that I think that one of the major reasons, besides also growing up in a household where taking painkillers and and taking medication wasn't necessarily discouraged. My mom, she's a nurse, but taking them in excess. Like when I had knee surgery, she, my surgeon, I was 17 years old and my surgeon gave me like Oxy and Percocets prescribed, right? But my mom hid them from me and she would just, she would give them to me like if I needed them kind of thing. So 
I wasn't, I'm not like a super, you know, I, I would prefer using natural things and, and stuff like that. But I think the main reason that I never did it was actually because I felt like as, as a black woman, I had to prove myself and part of proving myself meant doing things independently, doing things without mm. help. And that meant help mm. from professors, help from friends and peers and also help from medications so I think that there was a kind of like need to desire to to prove myself and to show that I'm good enough and I'm smart enough without without these these kinds of things do I think that that's something that people should follow or internalize not necessarily I mean that's just me trying to make myself more of a mule than I already am um and Mm. not recognizing the privileges and advantages that that other people came into university with that I didn't necessarily have um but yeah it's just it's not my thing it's just not my thing I'd rather if I need to if I needed to write a paper even when I was an undergrad and it was due at midnight or something or it was due at 5 a.m the next day I would take like a two-hour nap and write until five o'clock in the morning like I wasn't I wasn't even like an all-nighter person or drinking a ton of coffee I just you know did what what I had to do and if it didn't work then you know it didn't didn't work work. I I was also not an all-nighter person I maybe I don't know I always feel unusual when I tell people I cannot drink coffee cannot do caffeine I can't even do caffeinated tea um and so people are like, well, what do you do when you're tired? I'm like, I, I sleep. sleep. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, you know. But again, like there there are certain things that we are primed to do because of capitalistic demands on our bodies, right? Uh, and this might also just be another kind of question to think about um, whoever this listener is, right, is one thing might be to consider, like, why does it matter to you what your white peers are doing in order to do their work um, if it actually does not impact you and your your ability to do your work? Um, I, I think a lot of times we see ourselves as in competition with people who actually can't even sit in a room with us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, like, my therapist bless her, uh, Adette, my first therapist. Um, she, like, I was like in therapy one time complaining about something that a white person in class was doing. And she said, well, why are you complaining about this? Why do you care about how he's talking? Like, why do you care about that? Why do you, you don't know him. You don't know his values. You don't know where he's coming from. You don't know. Um, and basically I was upset that like this white guy was using all of this flowery language and all of this in class and I'm like why can't he just talk straight like talk like regular people and she was like why is that make you feel inferior if he's talking this way is that why you like is that why you're so upset about it like why are you letting this white man take up so much space in your mind in your life um when he's just going about his day you know and I that really had to sit with me um and then that's when I was like I can choose to not let what white people are doing whatever like invade my space my mental space um and that's like a it's it's helped me it's definitely but i think what i'm reading from this letter is that the writer feels like they're not 
playing on the same playing field because these because their peers are using these drugs in order to in, enhance their focus uh, and attention while completing their assignments. So I, th- I think that's what I'm I'm reading here. Yeah, I mean, I can understand. But that means that you see yourself as in competition with them to complete these assignments. Right. So, like, I don't I don't know the ins and outs of your graduate program. Right. Like, is it a situation in which you're competing for in-house fellowships? And so the uh, I was I was of, assuming this was an undergrad you know, and we're thinking bell curve and the students who do better, you know, impact the students who don't do as well. That's just what I but I'm I was making <laughs> I was making assumptions. Yeah, like you know, again, I have Yeah, we, we need we a have context, to make all of these y'all. We, need a context. we have no context. <laughs> I'm just coming from the place of like, oh, like is it is it are you taking on an inferiority that's not there, right? Like if these are what if if this is what they have to do to do their work, then let them do that. And if it, and it's like, if it's something that you feel like you need, though, then meet your own needs. But um, sometimes what I've learned in my life is that sometimes I, I will just be like, why can't other people do this other thing? And it's like, no, like my life is not about trying to make other people live like me. It's about being able to be my best self and live my own best life. So yeah. Um, but if it, yeah, if it's a matter of like cheating or something like that, then that's, that's a whole other, con- I, <laughs> yeah, that's I, a whole I, other, I, honestly, that's, um, <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I'll have to wait until, until I graduate to talk about that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, okay. We're going to go to the dating section now and we have a really good letter um, with <laughs> plenty of context. So this is very helpful. So I'll, I'll read it. Dear Brendan and Alyssa, thank you for your incredible... Po- See, this person listens to podcasts, okay? And knows what listener letters are supposed to sound like. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your incredible podcast. It has been a lifeline for me as I grow in my Black feminist principles and practices. Since you said dating advice, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm a 29-year-old, straight, cis, black woman living in New York City. I met a man at a bar while I was out with some friends. He approached me and asked for my number. We went on a date and he asked me a lot of questions about myself and was generally a gentleman. We've been dating now for six months. On our first date, I told him I was looking for someone who was consistent, kind, generous, intelligent, and wanted to be a father and partner. For the first four months, this is what I saw. He was the perfect man for me. He would send me articles he was reading and seemed to share my politics. But recently, he's been distant and seems annoyed when I bring up topics like misogynoir against Megan the Stallion and things like that. I was starting to see a future with him and now I'm worried I'm too much. Should I bring it up with him and risk him breaking up with me or should I just see if things get better? Ooh, child. (laughs) (laughs) This context is helpful. I'll say all of that. Um, And I would suggest looking at just the range of dating questions um, that this person just look up uh, what love bombing is 
Um, not saying that that's the situation that you're in, but it definitely reads like a love bombing situation. Um, and love bombing is when you meet someone and initially they're so effusive. They like, they love on you so much. They give you gifts. They're complimenting you all the time, blah, blah, blah. And then over time, right, they withdraw that attention and energy. They shift and you. And the goal of it is to for you to internalize right that shift and say, well, mm. what's changed? What is it about me that makes this person not um, be the same person that they were? And um, we this is a pattern that happens in um, in relationships with people who may have like narcissistic traits as well. Um, you're not too much, right? Uh, it literally could, and um, this is such an interesting framing too. Of like, should I bring it up and risk him breaking up with me? If this person is is causing you to feel like you are insufficient, then it's not someone that you need to be with. And this is coming from a girl who has, for most of my dating life, been abused by people. Like, if at any point your partner makes you feel like you are not enough right, and this is a consistent feeling, then you don't got to worry about him breaking up with you. You, sh- you um, I actually watched a TikTok today of a therapist who was just like, you, you have to ask yourself, right, when someone that you are close to or intimate with is mistreating you, and, and that's a pattern of behavior, right, what, is, what does that say about your self-esteem that you're allowing someone to treat you this way? People with high self-esteem do not stay around people who mistreat them, right? And I'm talking about adults. I'm not talking about children, right, who have no choice really about who they spend time with. And so, you know, I would just encourage you to think about how do you feel about this person now, right? It's not about how you used to feel about around this person. It's about how they make you feel now. And if they don't make you feel good now, then it's okay to let the relationship go and maybe... You'll get back together. Maybe you won't, but at least you won't put up with mistreatment because um, most of the time things don't get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can I, I honestly don't know a single person who's been in a long term romantic relationship in which behavior shift in the first six months didn't indicate that it was going to end well yeah like at all so yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i i want to echo what brendan said about love bombing also no you're not too much there's Mm -hmm. no such thing he's not enough (laughs) (laughs) you can't hangle it you can't hangle it that's what we say (laughs) um but I, yeah, I think what, I think what Brendan said, um, just about covers it. One thing that I would say, and, um, is just a more general piece of advice for dating is I think you gave him the cheat code. You said, this is what I want. This is what I expect. And he, he was like, great, got it. I'm going to do that for a few months. You know, get him, get in them drugs, (laughs) something like that. And now he's like, all right, well, I'm tired of hearing this, this black feminist crap now. Like I'm over it. So for me, I think that what I try to tell people when, when they're dating is 
don't just don't just come out and say this is everything that I want and everything that I expect from a relationship. I think that 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 attracts, as Brendan was saying, narcissists, like people who are just there to use you and then they can use that information um, against you. I think it's better to just know what you want. It's not saying you don't, you shouldn't know, you shouldn't be aware of the things that you want, but I think just take the time to observe the person and see if they fit mm-hmm. into the, you know, the traits that you're looking for in, in a long-term partner. And at the same time, be open to, um, be open to people who don't necessarily meet that, meet that criteria or who offer something different that still makes you happy. I think I, you know, with my fiance, (laughs) (laughs) at first I was kind of like, wow, I have so much, he's great. I have so much fun with him. And, you know, we have really great conversations, but I was kind of like, ah, this isn't like, you know, the, the serious you know, I didn't see it as something serious because we just had so much fun and I had a different idea of, of what it was that I wanted. And then it, it took, you know, many months, <laughs> many months of us going back and forth. And finally, my friend was just like, you guys need to just do this or be done with it. And so we did it and look mm-hmm. at look at where we are now. So um, also, also be open. I know people have very strict ideas or stringent ideas once they once they have that list they don't want to um deviate from it at all but i think that it's important to to be open-minded assuming that the person still has those like very foundational and important characteristics of you know i mean i don't think and don't don't get me wrong. I don't think that consistent, kind, generous, intelligent are like, <laughs> that's not a high bar, right? I don't think that you're asking too much of anybody either. Um, but there might be some other things that that are included in there that we don't know. So just be open-minded and don't give them the cheat codes. <laughs> don't give them I, the cheat I code think... to your heart someone write a song about us send us a jasmine sullivan she'll write a good song about it <laughs> <laughs> i do th- i think that is definitely salient um in situations where you know cis women are dealing with cis men um in particular just because of what we know about how um masculinity can be structured under patriarchy and so it's important to really um as some as someone who uh never saw myself being with a a man um (laughs) (laughs) can say like uh I definitely learned in my queer relationships that that kind of transparency and honesty up front was something that was expected um but could also again open up the door to being used and so it's just it's really understanding how to toe the line between a kind of transparency so that you're not in a relationship with someone who does not share the same values or the same outlook as you um and also right guarding your heart and um protecting your heart because at the end of the day right you are your your own best thing as Toni Morrison says right you are your own responsibility and I'm not gonna let me 
in there so we can move to the next which, question. Which there is so a question what, that follows on really nicely to that one. The pitfalls of New York dating are abysmal. I dated a guy who told me he was bisexual five weeks in and then dumped me saying if he was with a woman, he had to be really into it. I don't mind dating someone who is bisexual. How do I broach this topic with future partners? Um, honestly, and you might, you might not like me after this, but he was honest with you. He was honest with you. He said, you know, if I'm going to do this coochie thing, (laughs) I'm going to do it with somebody that I'm really trying to do it with. And his bisexuality, I mean, it's a factor, but it's not like, I don't, the question of how do you broach this topic I mean, are you actively like searching for bisexual men and you, but you want, like, I, I, I'm i kind of confused about it. All I'll say is he was honest with you. People have a right to date you for a period of time and then say for whatever reason that it's not working regardless of their sexuality. Um, and the fact that you don't mind dating someone who's bisexual, that's a great thing. If you are a cishet woman, a lot of bisexual cis men and trans men, right, feel insecure about sharing that part about themselves because they feel like um, cishet women will mistreat them. I don't think you need to broach the topic with future partners unless it's relevant. I would encourage you to think about this as a gift, right? This man said, after five weeks of spending time with you, um, that he didn't really see a future in this. And now you have all this time and energy and space to find someone who can see a future with you. Like that, that kind of honesty is, I appreciate it. I would, I would try to see it differently. I think from my point of view, I don't think that someone is obligated to come out to you um, Mm -hmm. immediately. I mean, if you ask, if they're open, that's one thing. Um, but I think giving them time to to share that side of themselves with you, you know, if they're dating you, it's because there's a po- there's a potential there. There's a possibility there. But like Brendan said, after some time, that potential and possibility might just fly away. Lines of flight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Lines of flight of potentiality. Um What I'm concerned about reading this is you said you don't mind dating someone who is bisexual. I'm assuming that the person who sent us this is black. I think in the black community, there's still a lot of stigma. Of course, there's a lot of stigma around queer and transness, but I think bisexuality is one of those things that especially cis black women are not really when it involves cis black men it is not really something that yeah it's not really welcome yeah it's not really welcome yeah that's a, that's yeah. a good way of putting it mm-hmm. so um so i could understand his his hesitancy or waiting you know waiting some time to get to know you before telling you um and so if you're truly comfortable with it i don't think that it's something that you would need to broach immediately i think as i'm as i mentioned in the previous one is it just it takes time to get to know somebody take some time get to know them observe um think about how you feel about this person because what you didn't write in this question is whether or not you are really into him Mm -hmm. 
And if it's about, because there are some people who believe that, you know, bi people should just take whatever the fuck they get, right? Like, at least, you know, someone's into you. Uh, and that is a biphobic approach to dating, um, right? And And so, yeah, the question really is, right, like, is the problem that he dumped you five weeks in? Is the problem that he dumped you and then said that he wasn't really into it? Um, like, like, what is the issue here? And also just, you know, want to send you some love and hopefully you have some compassion with yourself and you don't take it personally, right? Like, this, he just was honest, was honestly saying, you know, if I'm going to be with a woman, I really want to be invested in it. And now you know that he was not going, he was not going to continue to date you and not be invested in it. That is good information. Yeah, absolutely. That's good information. He's just not that into you, <laughs> as, as the title uh, of the book goes. Unfortunately. Yeah. But you know, but some, maybe some other be who person is. will yeah, be. there's going to be someone who right. is. Um, and it's not like you can ask someone that at the beginning of your dating relationship. You know, you can't go on one date and be like, mm-hmm. are you really into me? They're going to be like, I don't know, maybe we need a second or third date. You know, maybe that second or third date takes a couple weeks in, especially in New York where people's social calendars are packed to the hilt, which is very irritating <laughs> when you're trying to make friends. Um, <laughs> but there it is. So I think just take your time with people and, you know, don't feel like five weeks is, is, is a lifetime, you know, five weeks is a, is a brief amount of time when you're getting to know somebody. That's literally like, what? Like that might be the time, but I don't know. Like that's monthly. Like that's a month and a week. Like that's (laughs) not, that's. How long, like how long did it take for us to really become friends, right? <laughs> My therapist, uh, Alice, told me it takes two years to build a friendship. And when she and I realized, like, I had been so used to people who just, you know, trauma bonds and things like that, that I actually didn't even consider that I was building relationships with people too quickly, right? And so this. This kind of uh, Hollywood expectation or just societal expectation that you meet someone and instantly fall in love, that is that allows people to abuse you. That is that allows people to abuse you. And it also produces situations where people feel so much pain and hurt. And it's like, but you didn't even really know this person, right? Like you didn't give yourself a chance to know this person because you came with all these expectations. Let's see, uh, how do you talk to your partner about your emotional needs or bouts of depression? Um, Thank you for sending this question. I think this is a really important question. And it depends on the relationship that you have with your partner. From my own personal experience, um, the relationship that I'm in now is really the first relationship that I've ever been able to talk honestly about my emotional needs or when I'm not feeling good. Um, Because in the past, I've had partners who were emotionally immature, who required, uh, who required for me to ignore my own needs so that I could service theirs. Um, And what I've learned from 
being in this relationship is that um, being able to talk to, uh, to your partner about your emotional needs really requires a level of like vulnerability and honesty that is built over time. So if this is a, a relatively new relationship or, you know, you both you and your partner have decided, hey, we're going to do this thing, you know, um, it's, it might just be best to have a just like a clear conversation where you're both put your phones down, looking at each other in your eyes, holding hands or whatever it is you choose to do and just have a conversation about this is what it looks like when I'm sad. This is what it looks like when I'm entering into a bout of depression. This is what it looks like when I'm angry. This is what I need when I'm angry. This is what I need when I'm sad. Um, this is what I need when I'm depressed. And so for me, that conversation with, with him was, I know when I'm about to enter into a bout of depression when my room is a mess, when my apartment is a mess. Um, so, he likes to clean, so it was like, okay, this works. You know, I can support you in this way. Um, when I am sad, right, and, and this also takes you knowing about yourself and what you need, right? So, um, if and if you're still exploring that, then that's okay too. You can you can express that to your partner if y'all have created a container for that. Um, but for me, it's like I told him. Well, he actually asked me early on, like. When, when you're sad, like, how does that show up? And I told him when I'm sad, I, I act like this. And when I, I, need, I need to be hugged, I need to, you know, cry, I need to talk. Um, and he was like, okay, like, I can support you in these ways. Um, so in, in some, set the container for the conversation and then honor that, you know, things might change or shift. As you change as a person and your partner might change as a person. But that's all I got on my end. <laughs> I'm still new to being able to talk about my feelings. So, you know. I hear you on that one. I think one of, <laughs> for me, for, for at least in my relationship, I would say that we have a couple strategies. Um, for us, one of the things that was another reason that was like, of course this person is for me because <laughs> I love asking hypothetical questions or, you know, sending random, random questions that I heard or came up with while I was listening to something else or reading something else. And so the way that we get conversations started sometimes is we might send, send an article or be like, or just say, you know, I was reading this thing and it kind of reminded me of the experience that I have when, when I'm upset and, you know, it helped. And it, this is great if you're still exploring those feelings, as Brendan said. And, you know, it made me realize that these are the kinds of things that I need when I'm in I'm in this situation. And by sending that article, it, it opens the door or by sending that podcast episode, it, it opens a door to to a larger conversation where you can really talk about yourselves and your own experience. Other than that, I think Brendan covered it. <laughs> Yeah, and um, I'm really the question is, how do you talk? So I'm not going to try to figure out this other person you are asking. How do I talk? Yes. So I feel like I answered your question. Yes. Okay, next question. My partner and me have been dating for four years. We recently discussed moving in with each other. Financial means are not an issue. I worry my partner will not propose marriage if we move in preemptively. 
What would be the big difference if we live together now versus as an engaged couple? How do I make clear that this next stage of our relationship requires a proposal? Say, Say it. it. I'll put a ring on it, boo. Put a ring on it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Say okay, this is, um, this is, I just went through this in 2020 because I moved in with, at the time, Bay um, in January of 2021. And... He proposed in April of 2022. However, we did couples pre premarital counseling in late 2021. So, <laughs> so we are kind of you know messing up the the timelines on these things. But what I would say is for us, I wanted to spend more time with him, to have that experience of living together, um, seeing if our lives gel, mesh well, mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. him coming over every now and again, you know, on the weekend, spending the weekend and all of that kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, maybe it's the same, but it's not really the same. It's not the same because mm -hmm. you're, it's not the same you're in their space, they're in your space, and it doesn't really, it just... It feels different and it's experienced differently because in the end it's that place is your responsibility the rent is your responsibility or the rent is their responsibility etc so there is absolutely a big difference in terms of you know you have to figure out how are you going to share share household duties share the chores how are you going to handle finances? Are, are you going to split everything evenly? Are you going to split things proportionally based on your income? Are you going to have a joint account? So all of those things change the dynamics in incredible ways. <laughs> but if you're feeling mm -hmm. like, I think one thing that you have to make clear is that the move-in is not a trial period. It's not a, it's not a right. trial marriage. You're saying if we're moving in together, it's because you see me as someone that you want to marry. I think that's, that's the conversation that you need to sit down and, and have with your partner. Otherwise, some people, they will just see it as, oh, this is, you know, this is convenient. This is easier. This is a period where we'll just be getting to know each other and see if this is the person that I want to marry, which I've been in that situation as well. Did not work out. Where were we? Babe. When we moved in together, was it clear that we were going to get engaged? Or was it more like we're moving in together to see how it goes and then if things go well, we'll get engaged? I think it was more so looking at it as like you are someone that I'm considering marrying and I would like to get further down to, towards that goal. There you go. Heard it from the mouth of fiance himself. <laughs> <laughs> so it was something, you know, it was about getting closer to that, that goal of getting married. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. My memory is terrible, but I definitely, I think for where I was in my life at the time, I was just open to moving in together and seeing how things went. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, I thought, okay, I can, you know, this is working for me. I like this. And so we started 
um, you know, joining our lives in, in more ways than just moving in together and having a lease. So you just have to decide what your, you know, how you're looking at this moment and then talk to your partner about it. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, you know, uh, marriage is something that your partner also values, right? And yeah, just seeing like where you all see the relationship going. And then also understanding within yourself, right? What boundaries or um, boundaries you're going to set around this conversation, right? So if your partner says, well, I want to move in with you, but I'm not sure if I want to, like, I don't want to propose to you before that happens, right? Then what is that? What is that signal for you, right? Like, is that something that you're, are you willing to live with someone um, and be just living to together, shacking yeah. up? Shacking up, as they say, um, where, you know, back in the day. But also, you know, this is this is one of those things where I first read the question and I was like, mm, you know, it's not 1967. Like, it's not like <laughs> back in the day where they used to say, you know, close your legs or else you're not going to meet someone or don't live with them unless, you know, he's, he's going to get too comfortable. Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Right. Like he's going to get too comfortable and not propose to you if um, if your partner and I don't know the gender of your partner, but if your partner wants to get married to you, then then that's a goal that they have, regardless of whether or not, you know, you live together. And as Alyssa said, right, living together really changes the structure of the relationship and it allows you to see if this is someone that you one that you actually kind of want to marry and want to want to live with. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and you could move in together and come to the realization that actually y'all don't live well together. Um, and then you have, you know, you have to figure that out from there. Yeah. And then that's a that's a time where you decide, do we work on this or is this relationship strong enough for us to work on things, to change things so that we can get to the point where we're ready to get married? Or is this just not a relationship that I'm prepared to be in? I think it does put a lot of pressure on the relationship, not necessarily to get married, but just to see how you work together as a partner. The The most, mm-hmm. the biggest danger is that you just slide into getting married because that's what's expected after you move in together. But if you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about your expectations and make sure you're clear on what those are um, and you're evaluating how things are going as it's, as it's happening, then I think moving in together can be a good thing. Of course, there is evidence that couples who live together before getting married, um, they have higher rates of divorce. I I wonder if that's a lagging indicator. I don't know um, of you know previous divorce statistics, but I think that's more reflective of like cultural values, right? Like if you're not living together in in 2022, if you're not living together before you get married, then most likely there's a religious or cultural value that also says divorce is not possible. So I think that's more reflective of that than anything else. Boom. What Brendan said. <laughs> what? 2023. Oh my gosh. I'm still in last year. Oh yeah, we are in 2023. Yikes. Um, and then the last thing that I will say is something that our uh, counselor told us. And she was like, I was like, you know, I, I want us to be doing this, you know, when we get married. And, but I'm not sure like, how, wow. How, how 
my fiance will feel about him. <laughs> Am I saying his name? Am I giving his government? Anyways. Um, and she was like, no, you have to, you have to do it now. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, if you want. People don't change from Yeah, age. you don't change. Like, <laughs> if he's not comfortable with it now, then he won't be comfortable with it just because you guys are married. So tell him what you want. And if that's not, if he's not on board with it, then you can compromise or you can change your expectations or, you know, or you can decide that maybe things aren't, maybe this relationship isn't right for you. So whatever your expectations are for marriage is what you should be experiencing from the person that you're dating. Well, okay. In a relationship with, because we... Yeah, sorry. I in don't a, want to in mark, a relationship with. <laughs> yes. Because, again, the... The, the lingo. The lingo. Dating and, and, the lingo. I'm just like, right. you know, you're, you're <laughs> talking, you're dating, you're... I don't even know. You're... Yeah. Um, ghosting. I don't, don't know what these things. What's yeah, going on? You don't, <laughs> don't go on one date and be like, I'm trying to get married. Yeah, like, don't be no, like, I'm um, expecting husband mm, behavior from this guy I went on one date with. But, you know... Just expect Um, that the person that you're in a relationship with is not going to change when you get married. So, (laughs) right. And, and yeah, so that's between you and your partner to to figure out the ins and outs of that one. Peer-to-peer questions, even though, wow, these dating questions are so interesting. Okay, the (laughs) peer-to-peer questions. What do you do in situations when you need help but don't want to contact the police? Uh, would really love context around this, um, in particular because you know what kinds of situations are these nonviolent situations that can be, or nonviolent conflict that can be resolved, um, in a like a relationship that you have with someone. Is this with a stranger? Is this with someone in community who's not necessarily your friend? Because um, these there's no kind of uh, blanket answer and that's something that white supremacist capitalism right anti-black cis hetero all of the terms right have have led us to believe that there's a such thing as a universal when pre-colonization right it was it was about community it was about the local right and the connections that you make there so there's no real blanket answer to this question i can give an example though so I have a friend who was being stalked by an ex and the behavior was increased, was escalating, increasingly so. Um, and this friend contacted other friends, right? Other people in the community uh, and said, I'm, I'm experiencing this danger, this harm, and this person is escalating it. Uh, they're leaving things at my door when I'm not home. I'm coming home and there's, you know, marks on my car. My tire is blown out. Uh, I'm receiving all of these strange calls all times of day and night. Uh, Things like that, right? And they work together with their friends and other members of the community to create a safety plan that other members, other friends would say, okay, well, you're experiencing these things at night. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have someone who's, who's, on a rotating shift with you to like sleep in your apartment with you to make sure that you're safe. Um, we are going to change your phone number. Um, something that a lot of people don't like to do because it's inconvenient, but here that's one way to not get the police involved and also end um, unwanted contact, right? Is change your phone number. We're going to 
alert the people that you work with. Cause I also know of people who have been stalked in where the um, person who was stalking them contacted their jobs and alleged a lot of horrible things and tried to put their livelihood at risk. Um, so, you know, you want to develop safety plans where you are alerting the people who are able to help you in whatever kind of danger that you're in. Now, if this is a situation in which someone is being physically violent and you need help, then again, I would suggest a safety plan with members of the community, friends, if possible. If this person is a partner, definitely there are um, intimate partner violence advocates like myself in all over the nation who are able to like, people can call and we can create safety plans with you on how to escape the situation. And you don't have to have police contact or report that person. Things get dicier if children are involved, um, if sexual abuse of children or, you know, elders, disabled people, other things are involved, things get dicier. But again, without context, I can't really like give too deep of answers to this question. Yeah. And we can put some of those resources in the show notes as well. So folks will have those, can send those um, to people who may need them. I think the example that I would have is my building complex has a tenants association. And during our last association meeting, people were talking about someone who has been um, has been a disturbance. He's been, you know, yelling racial slurs out of his windows, kicking walls and things like that. You know, someone who it seems like is very much in, um, you know, going through a mental health crisis and they'd contacted the police. The police said he lives here. There's nothing that we can, that we can do. And I told People, I said that the police are not really the right people to handle this. Things can go very wrong, especially if they mm-hmm. are in the middle of in the middle of a crisis that you know may not be. He may not be actually enacting violence against people, but can seem violent because he's kicking things and you know kick, punching doors and walls and and so on. And nobody had actually gone to speak with him. Except one, I think there was one man who lived, you know, down the hall from him, but nobody had actually checked on him or um, gone to see if there was anything that he could need. And so in that instance, New York City does have a mental health crisis hotline, which of course, keeping in mind that this is still within the the bounds of of state capture and, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like, and policing, just not necessarily with the guns. Um, but folks like that are trained to service people who are going through experiences like that. So I think looking for other resources, as Brendan mentioned, that don't involve the police because a lot of a lot of places do have them and making use of those. And of course, being a fellow community member, I mean, this is your neighbor and no nobody checked on him nobody's gone to say do you have any family that we could call (laughs) or um do you you know other friends or do you have do you have a doctor or something you know um instead people were just afraid 
And I think fear is yeah. one of the fear is one of the things that often one of the emotions that leads us into a lot of trouble and danger. So get to know your neighbors. Get to know folks. Get to know your neighbors. Yeah. And yeah, like the the thing with abolition, right? Is people say, you know, well, now all of a sudden abolition is a hot thing and you know it's all about love and blah 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 but no it's actually it's actually a call, a call to responsibility right it's a call to move outside of the capitalist frame of the individual and say that my life is not necessarily in, any more like important or special than someone else's right um and so that means that for my life to be good it's dependent on like how good my neighbor or my community member, right? However fashion my community is too. And so that's something important to remember. Um, if these are situations where you are experiencing physical danger, the best thing to do is to figure out what, how can I immediately deal with the physical danger? Can I move away from it? Shut the door, whatever. Um, are there people that I can call in my community to assist me? Uh, and what are ways that I can um, pull my community into keeping us all safe? And yeah, we're definitely going to put resources in um, so that folks can, because we really have to start building these skills because there's going to be a world without police one day, right? So we have to start building these skills. Since we're talking about abolition, we'll go to a, a similar question. We all loved when DeBaby and Andrew Tate were sentenced. I think Andrew Tate was arrested. Um, and then what's his name? The short guy. <laughs> the short Canadian. Yeah, I was like, DeBaby. I'm not sure if it's DeBaby. DeBaby, are you talking was about uh, Daystar Peterson? Yeah, I think this, I think this person meant Tory Lanez. <laughs> so Tory oh, Lanez. Daystar Peterson. Daystar, Daystar Peterson, Daystar Peterson. Um, which is which is hilarious because I've been seeing Daystar everywhere. Like Daystar Moving Company, Daystar this. Anyways, it's just been in my thing. So anyways, we all loved when what this person meant was Daystar, um, who was charged, um, tried, and convicted and Andrew Tate has been arrested. How can we as a community balance abolition and necess necessity for community protection? I'm, I'm going to give this one to Brennan because she recently wrote an essay um, <laughs> that speaks very eloquently about this very subject. <laughs> I guess I did. I guess I did. I was like, I guess I could answer this question. Um, first of all, the question that I, I saw this, I was like, we need to disentangle. Who is we? Um, who is we? Who is we that all loved when Daystar and <laughs> Andrew Tate? I didn't even know who Andrew Tate was until I saw it on Twitter. And I was like, why are people talking about this white man? And then I saw someone actually who was not black say that he was a black man and tried to make it some kind of anti-blackness thing. Oh, Lord. And again, but the, the women that were primarily affected by Andrew Tate's violence were were non-black women, right? Um, and so, again, the question is, who is we uh, as a community? Are we all a community that has investment in abolition because we know that policing is a violent institution that disproportionately distributes death 
and disease and harm and violence to black and blackened people, right? So the commitment to abolition is regardless of how I feel um, about someone being sentenced or charged, convicted, etc. Because I don't think either one of them, as you said, neither one of them have been sentenced, right? And so um, it, it's not a matter of how I feel about a person or how I feel. It's a matter of understanding that policing in the criminal punishment system is an institution that is bad for everyone, right? Um, so balancing abolition with the necessity for community protection. Protection in, in this essay that Alyssa talked about, right? I talk I'll link about it in protection. the notes. Don't worry, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I talk about protection, right? Um, I think we also need to really interrogate our relationship with that, right? Why is it that we feel like we need to turn to other people to protect us, right? And I'm talking about adults, not children in this instance, right? Protection is a relationship that is established through patriarchy specifically, right? Where we are asked to turn to people who harm us and say, hey, can you keep us can you can you keep us safe from this other kind of harm, right? Protection is not something that we should be aiming for as a community. If we're thinking that we want to be an abolitionist community, then we're actually trying to create safe communities, right? Communities where we don't need protection because there is no other harm that we're trying to like displace, right? So if the question is, right, how do we create safe communities, that don't involve um, the criminal punishment system, then we have to, all of us have a responsibility to each other to hold each other accountable for harm. Uh, One of the things that I discussed in the essay that uh, we've seen happen time and time again when black men are charged and convict or charged with particularly sexually violent or gender violent offenses, right? There is this kind of callback to the 19th and 20th century lynching, right? They're trying to lynch him or there's, you know, this this generational trauma of, of our communities being ravished by white violence, right? Where they would come and point to a boy and say, this boy looked at this woman wrong and now he's dead, right? Or they would come and point to a young girl child, right? Or a, or a woman, right? And say that they were involved in some kind of, um, quote unquote, illegal activity and then string them up. And so I think as a community, as a black community, I'm, this is the we that I'm going to use in this moment, right? As black people, we have to really start interrogating like the legacies of generational trauma that push us to not hold black cishet men accountable for the violence they put, they do to people in our communities. Megan the stallion was not trying to go to the police. She said, I did not want to go to the police about this. She, when the police stopped her initially, she didn't mention that he shot her. Right. Because and I, I sympathize with her because I've protected people who've harmed me. And there, I know plenty of black women who have, who said, I didn't want this man to go to jail, even though he didn't give a fuck about how I felt when he did X, Y, and Z, right? And so we, as a community, really have to interrogate 
if safety is important to us or if we're trying to kind of, or if we still trying to fall in these age old patterns dictated by like colonialism and white supremacy that say that men should be able to do whatever the fuck they want at the expense of everybody else. And I don't think that black people as a whole are really ready to deal with the fact that black men actually do not need to be anybody special. And that's why I'm gonna leave it. Mm. That's why I'm gonna leave mm. it. <laughs> why black men do not why need to are black men mm-hmm. entitled to protection, but not black women and black queer and trans folks. Right. Like my like what I what I say all the time is we keep saying protect black women, protect black women, but who in the hell are we talking to? Like, who are we talking to? <laughs> I know we're not talking to the, to the niggas that we be letting in our house around our kids do whatever they want. I know we're not talking to the men that we let do whatever the fuck they want with no consequence, right? Or to the boys that we let do. Like, we asking the same people that's harming us to protect us? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to... We really need to think about how can we create safety in our communities for for black girls, black children, black queer and trans people. Um, and that has to come at odds with black men having power. People think you can have both. And it's like, no, we have to actually that comes at odds with patriarchal power in our community. Just within the question, abolition and community, I don't necessarily want to say protection, but safety and community those are entangled they're not opposing each mm-hmm. other they're not necessarily the same things but one equals the other they're kind of like a it's a recursive relationship is what i would say to have one mm-hmm. we need the other to have the other we need the other so it's, it's not they're not a binary so to speak in the way that the question was framed all right, yeah. we have two more questions left. I really like both of them. I know. <laughs> okay, let's answer them both really quickly because one is really, one is near and dear to my heart and the other one is near and dear to my brain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Which one are you going to do first? All right, we'll do the how to keep tradition alive with our elders. Oh, Sorry, so that's the question. Yeah. How do I keep tradition alive with my elders? How can I reconnect with family that I previously was not close to, but want to learn all that I can from them? Okay, I feel this deep in my heart um, as someone who is a first-generation Canadian, whose family is Jamaican. And when I was growing up, I was just like, whatever, I'm Canadian. I don't want to learn Nathan from you. (laughs) I'm not going to be spending all this time in the kitchen. And now I'm older and I really wish that I had. You know, I'm spending a lot of time learning how to cook Jamaican dishes. That's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm anthropology of food. So food is deeply connected to tradition, but also even with things like, you know, getting married, I'm thinking about how I can incorporate Jamaican wedding traditions and in, into mine and, and things like that. So. <laughs> I think that's so sweet. I know, I it's cute, cute. it's adorbs. Um, so I think in terms of that, it's, it's just a question of one, reaching out and you know spending time with them if they're willing and that's the other thing that you have to be prepared for is they might not be willing to share those traditions and histories with you um because in in my case a lot of 
a lot of our history, my family history, um, comes with a lot of pain, trauma, abuse, and a lot of the time my family, they don't, they don't want to relive that, so they don't necessarily want to talk about um, the experiences that they had when they were in Jamaica. Um, you know, maybe they'll be willing to tell me recipes or something like that, but they won't necessarily want me kind of, you know, sitting around having them tell me stories while we cook together and, and stuff like that. So it's just being prepared for for each eventuality, but I think just reaching out and, and trying to spend time with them is in any way that you can is a good start. Yeah, uh, I would say the same thing. Uh, I was like on a path to find ancestors. I did Ancestry.com. I didn't do that genetic stuff though. <laughs> um, I did Ancestry.com and and I actually had like people who are my distant cousins reach out and these are like older black folks. And I think that the the thing about being proactive, reaching out and just saying, hey, I just want to learn about you, learn about your life, learn with you and being open to them, you know, being like yes or no and showing genuine interest is really all you need, all you need for the people who you know, require that. Right. So, yeah. And we, we also have the, our, I mean, this isn't necessary, of course, but we have a black feminist interview guide, um, that you can email us for. And, you know, it's, it's a start where you can start thinking about questions you might want to ask or, um, you know, just ways to jumpstart the conversation, um, so that you can, so that you can get to the practices, right. And understand them Mm -hmm. in a, in a deep way. I know that just touched my heart. Okay. Uh, uh, how do we make it socially unacceptable to film people in public? How do I make sure I am not caught on candid camera? Why do people like to contribute to our own surveillance? These are all really, I mean, the last question is definitely philosophical. Um, I, how to make it socially unacceptable. What I've started doing, and I think we should bring this back is just like expressing my disgust with people that do things in public that is like, uh, like, like this man was at dinner with his sugar baby and I was <laughs> at the other table and he started talking about these females, this, that, and the third. And I literally cut my eyes at him, made some kind of like noise and he changed his whole tone, switched the whole tone up, started whispering to her. Like, I'm like, that's right. You're not about to sit here and be loudly disrespecting women out here. Now, when it comes to filming people in public, I hate to be that millennial, but I keep seeing these videos of these kids doing that. Um, and and any one time I've been approached to be like interviewed for people, somebody's TikTok or whatever. Oh God. And I just said, no, I said, no, I don't, I don't want to do it. And I walked away. I don't think that there's in this day and age when, when most people have phones that can videotape that you can really just like a hundred percent safeguard yourself from being caught on candid camera. Um, but I guess one way to prevent that too, is to check your own behavior and make sure that you're not, like usually candid camera is exposing someone who is doing something outrageous, right? Are you out here um, threatening to throw a chair at someone? Are you out here, you know, are you like truly acting outrageous or are you just 
shopping in Target. Like nobody's <laughs> going to follow you on a camera shopping Listen, on Target. People might um, if you're wearing a certain outfit, people might follow you. And I this oh, is some hmm. this is something that bothers me. I if I'm walking through a group of people taking pictures, you know, I live in New York, so there are a lot of um, monuments and things that people want to take pictures of. I cover my face. <laughs> like I cover my face like the way people do when they're walking past the news. I avoid being in people's like camera range as much as I can. I absolutely do not like it. I don't want people having random people, strangers having photos of me. I don't like when people take photos of me on their phones. Uh, <laughs> if I don't know them, I mean, if we're friends, that's fine. Um, but, you know, people have definitely wanted to take pictures of Brendan and I, and we were like, no, um, no. you can just take it with our camera, with our phone, because I just don't want, I don't know what people are going to do with my likeness. And I also don't want to end up like a meme or something on Twitter because I got caught on on candid camera. So I try to, I actively avoid those things. I also couldn't sleep last night. So I watched Coded Bias, which is a documentary on Netflix, um, which is about technology. And one of the, one of the things that they talk about is how we are contributing to our own surveillance by, by posting all of these photos, um, by liking all of the, all of these posts and being so active on social media, sharing all of this information about ourselves to the point where some of these algorithms know us better than we know ourselves. You know, one of the things that my friends and stuff will, will text me about is they'll say, wow, I was just talking about a trip to Vegas. <laughs> and now I'm getting all of these. I haven't, I haven't searched it. I haven't done anything, but now I'm getting these ads for Vegas. How would they know that I'm I'm looking to go to Vegas and the ways that, and what, what's worrying is that these, this information, these algorithms can be used to manipulate us. They can, you know, they'll mm -hmm. look at people who might be um, gamblers. They'll look at what kind of profile they have on the internet and then they can find people who might be prone to gambling and then um, use that information in malicious ways in order to essentially ex exploit and take advantage of those tendencies. So why do people like to contribute? I don't think that people are as aware of the dangers of it as they are, you know, the joy, the pleasure, the fun. That's what those apps do is they make it fun for us to share our information with the world. And I don't think that people are as we're not informed. People are just generally not informed about privacy. People think privacy is just like what's in my, you know, what's in my home that nobody's taking pictures of me in my home and and things like that. But privacy is also biometric data. It's also biological data. Like your DNA, your face itself, um, it it in it it is something that that has information that can be used to identify you. Um, against certain databases and and can be used against you. So why do people like it? I don't think they necessarily like it. I think that they're just not aware, unfortunately. So yeah. there's um there's a are they it's not a charity, but I think it's like an advocacy advocacy group called Big Brother Watch in UK. 
in the UK. I'm not sure. I'm sure that there's, you know, there are similar organizations here in the US, but, you know, getting started with those resources and becoming an advocate, letting people know the ways that surveillance images can be used against them um, is is probably a really a really big start. I remember that it used to be you weren't supposed to take pictures of strangers. And I remember asking why, why can't you take pictures of people, you know, at the mall or something, which is in public. And I remember the answer that someone gave me was like, you know, they could be a political refugee or something. And someone might see that photo on the internet and, and now they'll know where they are and they'll be able to track them down and, you know, stuff like that. This was when I was nine or 10, so I don't don't remember who told me that, but that's something that has stayed with me for a long time, is that just your face, even your profile and a generalized location can help people track you. And that's Mm -hmm. why I'm a little bit freaked out by the whole thing, even though I'm not running from anyone, but whatever, you don't know. The, I'm not running from anyone, but the important thing is not necessarily um, that you have something to hide. It's what the state and what what companies can do with that information. And the stories mm-hmm. that they can tell about you with that information is what's very important. So I would start with resources. And if you're passionate about it, I would you know, be someone who advocates and educates about these kinds of topics. Yeah. And to shortly say something else is like it's socially acceptable to do it because people consume the content mm-hmm. right people are making money off of it so until people till everyone gets on the do not film me i don't want to be you know in your tiktok i don't want to be in your ig reel i don't want to be on your youtube video until being famous and being rich is no longer a goal that people have I don't know if, if we can make it socially unacceptable, but we can, as you said, educate ourselves and, and at least start that wave like Ooh. of being like, you know, you actually don't have to submit to this, you know. Just just in case folks don't have Netflix or don't want to watch this doc, although they should. And I will put some of the books um, and, and information that was shared in that in that film as well. One of the things that I learned is that we often think that rich people get technology first, but actually a lot of these kind of technologies are used on on poor in poor communities and in communities where there are a lot of people of color where there's no expectations that your rights will be respected. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of surveillance technology is of course, you know, used trained in poor poor black, poor communities of color. So this is, it's not just a technology issue. This is also a race. There's also a class. This is a social justice issue, the question of surveillance. So get educated, (laughs) y'all. All right. Well, on that note, um, wow, we've gone an hour and 45 just about. So that is all we have for you today let us know if you enjoyed this episode if you would like us to do this kind of q a listener letter with more context please um, more often if you'd like to see us do this for patreon you can send us questions where you'd like our advice and we'll respond as best we can 
Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council, the Heyman Center Public Humanities Graduate Fellowship, and donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, that telephone, Nokia phone has never gone go away. Yes, no. and um, not as easy to surveil. Okay, guess you guess mm, you that brick phone. Yes. <laughs> Bring back the brick phone. Uh, we would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore Daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron to access exclusive content, visit our website, ZorasDaughters.com. Last but not least, remember to be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye. Bye.